Hi everybody and welcome to the second edition of the In My Life podcast. Uh, as always, joined by my co-host for this one in the form of uh, Andy Wales. Andy, how are you? We sort of missed last week due to me being ill, but we're back. How are you? I'm not bad. Looking forward to this. Bit of a different skew on things and just see how this podcast grows. Yes, it's your time to be educated rather than me this time round. Uh, because our guest this evening in the form of Simon Edwards in Colombia, uh, you'll probably know him from the South American football show and the uh, couple of Bidadores pods, has joined us for uh, a, a trek through his life. Uh, so how are you, Simon? First of all, you're very welcome. Good to be talking to you again. Yeah, no, thanks very much. Uh, I enjoyed last week and uh, looking forward to this week. Uh, sun is shining in Medellin. I've hurt my ankles. So I'm missing my game today. I can't play, but I'm going to watch my team play a bit later. Uh, but yeah, all good, all good. Sun is shining. Looking forward to this this pod. Do, do they do they even have a capable replacement number ten for you or or, or not? I take it you take it you're worried for this game. <laughs> you know, last week I had to play as a number nine, so that involved a oh, lot more never. physicality and running. <laughs> I was a, I was a target man. I was getting elbowed in the face. It was yeah, it wasn't it wasn't my usual, uh, usual luxury ball playing midfield role. So uh, yeah, uh, you know, but we'll, we'll have to adapt. Oh, you have my sympathy playing football down here. Too, too many elbows and knees for my liking. You know I mean? oh, two, a- 2 p.m. kickoffs is the hardest thing for me. Ah, <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, anyway, listen, let, let, let's get into it. Where do you want to start? Uh, I know that you're, you're keen to talk about uh, your journey in football and, and, you know, I know the topics, but I'll let you I'll let you decide where we start, Simon. What What's your first topic that you want to talk about? Okay, so for me, we're going to start with the the. Talk- tournament which will give you an idea which and really this would be a good tournament really, there's a good we're talking about here yeah this is a good this is, i mean we're going back to when i was like 10 11 years old so pretty much everything was good back then i mean that's how you kind of feel you know <laughs> looking back for me euro 96 was was a tournament where it kind of my footballing enthusiasm really peaked everything about that summer was was amazing it was you know i was 10 11 years old so every single day playing football for two or three hours with my friends. I, one of my best friends was uh, Matthew Connolly, who now plays for Cardiff. So we always used to play him and his brother against me and my brother. And, you know, always, oh, I'm this player, I'm that player, you know, but that Euro 96 was the tournament. Every day I would draw cartoons of the players on the one-up, those um, big-headed little statue things, remember those? All of that stuff, just everything about it was, I was so excited going into that tournament. Do you remember those? Me, I, actually, I'm going to stop you there, Simon. Do you remember those? <laughs> yeah. Because there was far too many Lampards, and Lampard wasn't even popular at the time. And every time, because my kids had those, and every time it was fucking Lampard, Lampard, Lampard. <laughs> yeah, I remember those used to, yeah, Spool Skulls, and I used to really, like, enjoy drawing cartoons based upon those kind of people. So, like, David Seaman was the best, because he had a moustache, and he had some distinguishing features with the ponytail. Uh, that was, you know, all on the run-up to the tournament. I would play a game in my garden, so we had a bit of a big area in front of the house with a, a garden and it would be like two touch. So the keeper kicks out with my brother. So one person kicks out and the other person has a touch and has to score. And I'd like always draw out tournaments. Okay, so you're this team and I'm this team. And then commentating, okay, Konchelski is on the ball. You know, that whole tournament, that was when I was so enthusiastic and excited about football because World Cup 94, you know, I was what, like eight, seven or eight. And I, you know, I was aware of it happening, but England weren't playing, so it wasn't a big deal. And I was too young to really, you know, my my dad liked football, wasn't massively into it. So, you know, that, that tournament didn't really affect me. But Euro 96 was like the biggest deal. And especially being in England, it was you know, an amazing, amazing summer. So that for me is like a real highlight. Just everything about the lead up, you know, the England team, the 
you know, playing in the English stadiums, which were familiar. And it just seemed like the sun was shining every single day for that tournament. So that was a real big, you know, highlight in my childhood and, and with football in particular. I think there's something different about football being on your doorstep like that, you know, major tournament and all the stars and all the attention and all the build up. And, and I, I liked as well something about all those overseas fans all coming into your area, you know, coming to see their, their team in, in your neighborhood and that, that atmosphere between two, you know, overseas nations meeting and, you know, cheering and chanting for their respective teams on your doorstep, you know, where your, your team's not involved or your nation's not even involved. There's a different kind of feeling to that, I, I think. And it's, it's, I think it's something where the people just kind of fall in love with it. And it was almost like 1966 all over again, where, where communities were, were getting to meet people that they'd never met before. And they were kind of falling in love with other nations, you know, even though their own team was, was involved in the tournament, they were kind of falling in love with other nations because this was on their doorstep and they felt a part of it. So there's, there is, I think there is something to be said for a tournament being in in your country, it feeling different to just watching it taking place somewhere else. Yeah, and I also think as well, with England not qualifying for 94, and again, this is me going back to my childhood, so you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think with England not qualifying for 94 and not having such a huge impact on international competitions uh, in the years previous, you know, it did feel like uh, this was kind of England coming together behind a team which, you know, how are we going to do? You know, there's a lot of questions. I know Alan Shearer before the tournament wasn't firing on all cylinders for England and there was questions. Why was he Why was he starting? Why was he given this position? So there was a lot of kind of, there wasn't the expectation, which I think played a lot of the tournaments after that. Uh, and it yeah. just seemed that people were very enthusiastic about England and in, not in a negative way, which can sometimes be the case England fans, but it was just the whole country coming together for this this summer. Also, game times, I think, made a big difference as well. Uh, not being middle of the night, early in the morning. So as a kid, I was either playing football or watching football for the whole summer. And it was it was great. Yeah, I think there was the usual kind of, you know, the build up that the media get themselves a bit carried away. But I think you're right. And a lot of people, there was that kind of expectation level. But there was also question marks over some players. So the opening game was a bit drab. And I think that kind of helped England, really, because because it was so drab. It immediately kind of dampened, perhaps, you know, some of the over-expectation that some people had. And then England just got better and better. And I think everybody sort of got into it. And it was but it was also that chance to see some of these other stars that were emerging, like some Zidane. You know, Zidane was being talked about. We had seen clips of him and, you know, you might have seen bits of him on Channel 4. But th- this this was, the, you know, the first time to really see a lot of Zidane and find out, you know, just what was all that fuss about this guy. I, I, I loved it. As a tournament, the atmosphere, everything, I absolutely loved this tournament. I, I, it's one of my favourites. No, I must admit, Andy, I would agree with you. You know, I know we're going to talk later on about, you know, falling out of love with the England national team and so on. But when you consider, you know, Italian 90, where, where England reached the semi-finals, again, uh, Euro 96, the, what you said there, Andy, as well, bringing football home and it was all the, the Badil and Skinner thing and whatnot. And there was a real, like, there was a real feel-good factor and, you know, as you said, seeing those players in those stadiums, I always remember, uh, I think it was Paolo Maldini, uh, the, the Italians played at Anfield, and there was, you know, they kept showing it on the television. You'll probably remember, Andy, that Maldini went past it, this is the Anfield sign, and touched it. And, you know, you always, I always felt immensely proud of that, because I loved, I always loved Maldini. 
And it's like, wow, maybe someday we can get the hold of him. But, that, you know, that, that tournament, I think it just showed it was the right time for, for, for England to host a tournament again. Um, and they showed that they could host a very, very good tournament. I think it was one of the best run Euros that I've ever seen. Uh, in my lifetime, I, I would certainly put it the, the highest. And, and you know, I don't have much love for all things English, so that's pretty a pretty high accolade I'm giving it. For me, it is the best Euros. Yeah, it, is, it was a great tournament, and like I mean, for England as well, to, uh, the, the winner of Scotland and you know, fair, you know, slightly fortuitous with England weren't playing that well, but they got the win and seventy five thousand at, at Wembley. And also, it was kind of like the last tournament where uh, the English stadiums were kind of the old school style stadium. You know? Obviously updated since seventies and eighties, but they hadn't been rebuilt. We weren't looking at the the, the new Wembley or the the Emirates. You know, it was kind of the old style English stadiums as well, which was which was quite nice uh, in terms of the atmosphere. Um, but yeah, for England to edge their way through, you know, draw the first game, edge past Scotland with that with that Gascoigne goal as well, uh, and then to win that final game against Holland, it, you know, yeah, definitely in terms of the public sentiment to kind of have that first game and be unimpressive and everyone kind of actually, you know, well, we'll try our best, but we're not that, not that good. Then to get that tough battling win against the local rivals, Scotland, and then to win 4-1 against Holland. And that, that 4-1, that Shearer goal where where uh, Sheringham gets the ball and squares it. You know, it looked like he's just going to shoot and just squares it to Shearer. <laughs> yeah, and it spins off into the top corner. That was such yeah. a lovely goal. You know what I remember about that? I still remember the next morning, the feeling of, of euphoria the next morning, uh, listening to the, ra- the, the Radio 1 breakfast show with Chris Evans and them playing um, a song called She Said, and they were re- and they were dropping in like you know the commentary for the goals after that yeah. and and that kind of for me summed up that whole tournament the way everybody felt a part of it and it was it was it was exciting it was fun it was it was such a good atmosphere and yeah and that was an iconic match you know even though that wasn't you know that wasn't a semi final or anything like that it just felt like an iconic moment in a tournament for England to play like that against a team like Holland. It just it kind of summed up the whole tournament for me. And it kind of as well, England played some really good football in that game. And for England who, you know, and we're going to talk a little bit about English footballing style and so forth moving forward, but for England who had kind of lost a bit of that international reputation you know they weren't really the innovators of football at the time they were you know stepping back in terms of some of the european giants but then to outplay the total football holland and again that holland team isn't as good as you remember you know they had on the right wing holland Jordi quiff <laughs> so so you had a wing back darren anderton <laughs> I, it, was, it wasn't too bad but yeah you know but yeah so to get that 4-1 win and i remember the commentary was already oh, teddy ready but pint of sherry, I don't know, something like that. Um, but also the fact that England, the England players were so happy to be involved in that tournament. And again, that's, we're going to look a bit about why I maybe lost some of the enthusiasm of English football. But I mean, there was, und- you know, and, and some of the drinking culture involved in football was a bit too much and, you know, was not really what professional athletes should be doing. And, you know, that came out a lot. Uh, on the one up to the tournament. Um, but there was definitely a sense that the players were so proud and so happy to be playing for England. And it was one of the you know real highlights of their career. They really wanted to make a statement. They really wanted to show they compete and that they were, you know, top world-class players and they were going to do, you know, the job at home. So I think as well, the enthusiasm of the players for that tournament and how much it clearly meant to the players. 
was one of the reasons why it was so so refreshing. So if that's you know your first positive, we we do love a negative. Me and Dave really <laughs> love the negative side of it. We we like we we you know we're quite sort of. Um, I don't know, we're quite some grumpy old bastards. Perverse. <laughs> we're a bit morbid like that, aren't we? Come on, indulge us. There must be a negative you want to move on to. No, of course. Uh, for me, the negative is pretty much the decade that followed <laughs> for England. Um, so basically, yeah. So for me, that tournament made me love football in a way that I hadn't before. You know, I knew all the players. My grandma couldn't believe that I could name every Romanian player at the 98 World Cup. Um, all these Yuz, uh, Montiano, all these guys. Um, so, yeah, so I was a huge, enthusiastic England fan. England games were the biggest deal for me uh, as a kid. And then the 2002 World Cup, England, you know, they did OK. They lost to Brazil, which, again, was a, an excellent Brazil team. With you know, England had you know Trevor Sinclair play. They they weren't that good, but they did okay. They were decent and you know good fun tournament. Then moving forward to 2006, then we start the Steven Gerrard, Frank Lampard, can they can't they play together midfield debate and you know four to two with the two big men. You know, okay, fair enough. Not the best tournament, but we're we're kind of heading in one direction. And then by 2010, England were rubbish, <laughs> and not only were they rubbish, but there was so much, you know, you never got the sense that the England players were comfortable playing for England or enthusiastic about it. You know, a lot with a lot of the England teams since, you know, in, in the last few years, it kind of feels like nobody wants to be the person responsible for ruining everything. Nobody wants to be the Gareth Southgate or the David Batty or whoever's going to come away from a tournament being responsible. So... For me, one of the negatives is is the England team since. And this 2010 debacle where they finished behind the United States and then lost absolutely, completely outclassed 4-1 against Germany, uh, with Germany playing, you know, a kind of 4-5-1 interesting formation, England playing 4-4-2 with James Milner, Gareth Barry, Lampard and Gerrard in midfield and, and uh, the big man, little man up front, Matt Upson in defence, and it's... There's being a bad team is fine, but a team that hates playing in big tournaments doesn't enjoy any aspect of it. Terrified of being responsible for for the collapse, and just that game was just the realization that it's going to be rare moments. But generally, following England in big tournaments isn't fun anymore, <laughs> and people are going to be depressed. They're going to be have unrealistic expectations. They're going to be over celebrate poor, you know, uh, narrow victories. And the football's going to be terrible and nobody's going to want to do take any risks. That for me was the biggest thing at this tournament, that no individual player tried to beat a man. They just passed it. Because if you pass it simple, then it's not your job. It's not your responsibility. Someone else is going to have to then deal with the ball. So for me, that was just kind of deflating gradually over time. But just that 2010 Germany 4-1 defeat where Germany were brilliant and England were as bad as as it can get and the players just look terrified and like had a horrible burden of having to win shirt for me that was that was a, a real low in terms of going from the enthusiasm of 1996 to that just depressing realization that this is english football now how much do you put on the, the responsibility you know you talk there about you know falling out of love with it and you know the players are so terrified to enter in tournaments you know from from a non-english point of view from a neutral point of view I can look at it and go, I, I blame the media, the BBC, the newspapers, who, 
for every tournament for England, you know, oh, well, they're being realistic. Be- realism, 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 realism. Two weeks before the tournament, we're going to win it. And everybody jumps on this, we're going to win it bandwagon. And you go into tournaments there with unrealistic expectations. Um, you know, I know that you invented the game. I know that you won in 1966. But, you know, ultimately, the press just get carried away. And, and even to, the, to a degree, Alan Hansen, who's a Scotsman, can get bloody carried away with it, which is, is the, probably the most disturbing thing of all. But I think half the problems with English football has been the media's um, hype of that team before each tournament. Yeah, no, definitely. And, you know, the thing is, newspapers, everyone has to have a narrative. The narr- there needs to be a narrative. You need to sell newspapers. You need to build an audience. And the narrative being, yeah, we're all right. We might do okay. No, you need something. You need, okay, we're going to win it if this guy can get on form. Or if this injured player is back, we'll be fine. We'll do brilliant. You know, there was Gareth Barry. Everyone was terrified that Gareth Barry was going to miss that tournament. Gareth Barry is a fine player. But the fact that England's hopes of this World Cup were solely dependent on, you know, limited defensive midfielder Gareth Barry getting fit. Playing against Ronaldinho is- and Ronaldo. <laughs> <laughs> it's just like... You know, and that was that was a narrative, and people kind of built up and got behind that uh, Rooney's injury. You know, there needs to be a narrative, and it's either that they're terrible, and you know, we're wasting our time, and this is how bad they are, and then suddenly they get a result, and it's oh, everything's going to be okay. We've got we've got uh, Sean White Phillips is coming through. Aaron Lennon's going to be the difference, and it's like ooh, he's a head down touchline, whip it in the box winger, and we've got Wayne Rooney and Jermaine Defoe in the box. So really, that's the solution. You know, this is what we're pinning our hopes on. And, you know, their commentators were going, oh, it was quite good, quite a good performance. It's like, no, it wasn't. It was terrible. <laughs> and that 4-1 defeat was kind of the, the you know, the, the realisation point that this wasn't fun and it wasn't going to get more fun anytime soon. Yeah, it was. It, they were pretty depressing times. Uh, I suppose they still are, but... <laughs> Yeah, that was, I, I think I, you know, echo you on that. You know that in the in the nineties, you know, the international football itself felt exciting, and it was an escape from club football. Now it kind of feels the other way. Like international football for me now almost feels like a chore. It's like, oh god, does we? Do, and and I, and it kind of feels like a lot of footballers feel like, oh, do we have to? And it's kind of going through the motions, and you do it unless you're at a big tournament, then it means something. It doesn't. That whole thing of international football, it just doesn't feel quite the same as it did. So, and then, God, I feel old. You know, it makes me sound old saying this, but you go are back old. 15, 20 years <laughs> or more. Yeah, well, there is that. Like, But I do I do think the whole thing around international football has changed. The, the whole mood and atmosphere and, and the way that it's viewed. And I think a lot of that has got to do with the, the whole saturation of club football and where that people are so obsessed by club football that international football is kind of just a sideshow now whereas it used to be everything built to what was aimed towards international football and that was you know the ultimate it's now not so much now it's it's the champions league that's the ultimate not the world cup the champions league yeah i, I think it's definitely had a knock on effect M- maybe it'll come round again as an englishman i can certainly feel your pain on having to watch england to the point where it was such a chore that I, I just don't really bother so much now. And I, as an adult, I've kind of grown and felt more alienated from, from the England team anyway, as, as a northerner. But yeah. So uh, we, we've had a positive that was, was very positive. We've had a negative that really uh, delves deep into the bowels. <laughs> Have you got anything positive to build us back up again? Can you, can you yeah. swing the mood back again? 
absolutely. And really, everything you've just said kind of leads exactly into why this next positive for me was so refreshing and positive. I lived in England. Uh, I moved to Colombia. Well, I first visited Colombia in 2000, um, and then I moved here in 2009. And I've been here most of the time since, um, so up until uh, you know today. Uh, and when I first came here, you know, getting into the football, you know, it was a, it was interesting. Uh, so the 2010 Cup, I was here for, but Colombia didn't qualify. You know, they came close, and actually at that time, the the Colombian games, some of them were actually in Medellin, the city where I live. So, you know, it was cool. It was very, you know, enthusiastic. But in getting England, uh, Colombia just missed out. The last World Cup that Colombia had played in before that was uh, uh, 1998, when they played against England, Valderrama, and aging Valderrama. And they went out, they were in England's group. They played against England. They went out in the group stage. And then before that, 94, again, was a tournament where Colombia went into that tournament with a lot of expectation. Um, Maradona had said they're favourites for the tournament. Uh, he says a lot of things, but they, they legitimately had a good claim to be one of the best teams at that tournament based upon the years previously. They played some amazing football. Even going back to 90, the World Cup 1990, um, that game against Germany where they completely dominated everything and just didn't score because they were too busy passing the opposition to death. And then, you know, they, they were, they'd impressed at that tournament. 94, there were so many expectations, but kind of the craziness and the violence and the, the issues in Colombia with, with Pablo Escobar and with the country at war with itself kind of overtook the team. So the team was really like a focal point and a reason for positivity going up to that 1994 World Cup. It was, we may be, you know, we've got a beautiful country, but, you know, there was the sayings that people, the problem is the people and we're violent and we kill each other. And you know, there was a real lot of negativity in the country feeling bad about themselves. But this team has shown so much positivity. They'd gone to Argentina. They destroyed Argentina. The first time Argentina had lost a competitive game at home ever and Colombia scored five past them. And then they go into the World Cup and they were going to show the whole world what Colombia is really about. And they scored an own goal and lost against the United States. And then the guy who scored the own goal was shot. And it was just kind of compounding the negativity surrounding the team. So fast forward to 2014. And again, Colombian football was was looking on the up. Uh, the team good. And going to that World Cup in Brazil, there was a lot of enthusiasm, a lot of excitement. Finally, we're back at the World Cup. We're going to show the world what Colombians are about. And, you know, we'd, we'd done so well with all these players. James Rodriguez, this kid's looking really good. You know, a lot of enthusiasm. And for me, the biggest thing about Colombia is how much the players love playing for the team. If you follow any of the players or, you you know, follow anything around the players, that is the biggest game for them. James Rodriguez, you know, he's proud to play for Real Madrid, but nothing compares to playing for Colombia for that guy. The same with Cuadrado. And you see the players dancing and celebrating before the tournament the happiest thing possible to be able to be the representatives of this country and they embody the culture from you know colombia is a country with a lot of different cultures the music in medellin is very different to the music in the caribbean coast the pacific which is predominantly like african roots uh the capital is you know a bit more mixed a bit more european so all of those cultures coming together the music and with the dancing and all these different things are kind of represented in the team and that 2014 World Cup, 
you know, Colombia did did the country, the team did the country proud. And just to be in Colombia for that tournament was amazing. Where the whole, literally, I would say ninety percent of the people you saw on the streets were wearing a variety, you know, a range of knockoff Colombia shirts, from the almost real to the original design to the to the sexy low cut design. You know, everyone had a Colombia. Everyone was wearing yellow for that tournament, and people were just so proud. And yeah, it was just an amazing, amazing time to be here in Colombia. Just in terms of the joy that people felt that you know with the team dancing when they scored and playing some great football and really embodying the culture and everyone getting to see a little glimpse of what Colombia is like you know with the smiles on the players faces and the dancing and you know the the decent football and the energetic football so that world cup and that lead up to that world cup was a was a real highlight for me Simon you know everything that you're saying there I, I could I could echo for for Brazil but there's an aspect to it, I think, that, that that's a little bit different. You know, we hear Adam talking about Alexis Sanchez would drop anything to play for his national team. There's the pride that you mentioned there within the players. This means something. And I think it, it comes back to the old, you know, getting one over on the old colonial masters and whatnot as well comes into it as well uh, for World Cups and so on. But th- th- people identify with the players who have that desire, that deep desire to play for for their country and, you know, beat the chest and so on. And, you know, even you want to take it, David Luiz and Thiago Silva crying at the national anthem here in Brazil. You know, th- th- these are very emotional people to begin with. Latin people are very emotional. Football is in the very moral fiber of, of their being. And I think the fact that all these countries suffer, you know, socially from, from poverty and whatnot, it's... Football is the one thing that unites the rich man and the poor man, and they can all get behind their country for one time and pull in the one direction. Even for those two hours, everybody's pulling in the one direction. And there is a real feel-good factor to it here for international games. And I I assume Colombia is just the same. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the thing is, people here are mad about football. But, for example, with domestic football, sometimes... You know, with the kind of barra blava culture and some of the violence and some of the competitive nature, you know, there's a little bit of cynicism, especially from the uh, the richer people who kind of see football as, you know, you know, we enjoy it, but it, it's associated with some negative things in terms of violence, in terms of, you know, looking down on some of the poorer, poorer fans who are the most influential in the stadium, you know, it's... it's Think about England's view of football in the 70s and the 80s. You know, we, we like it, but it's for the for the peasants to go and have fights and swear and, you know, whatever. You know, but with the international football, it's something that everyone can unite behind. It isn't, you know, with, with club football, sometimes it's like, you know, we, we love winning, but also we'd quite like to beat those guys. And, you know, it's a, you know, there's a cost of, whereas with international football, yeah, everyone is unified behind this one team. Um, and I think there's so many aspects of the Colombian team that, that show the best of Colombia, as I mentioned with the music, the positivity. And I think as well, I mean, Brazil, again, I definitely see the colonial competitive links and all that kind of stuff. Colombia really is just overcoming a sense of inferiority in terms of football. Colombians have always been their football's good, but they haven't qualified for They didn't qualify for a World Cup for, for over a decade. Uh, so it was kind of the sense that, okay, we're back. We can, we can show the world. No one expects anything from us. No one can spell the name of our country correctly, which really upsets Colombians. <laughs> Spelling it with a U, Colombia. Um, but this is this is our chance, you know. These these guys, good, and we're going to show the world. And there was so much of a sense of pride uh, everywhere you went in Colombia. The streets were completely full of people, um, just fireworks constantly, just people losing their minds. And it wasn't, and it was, yeah, a national pride. You know, for example, with the the World Cup, 
as you saw with some of the South American teams, the national anthem would stop and the stadium would continue singing. And it was kind of like a very, very positive expression of like national pride. Being from England, like nationalism is often like a dirty word or associated with with xenophobia or with, you know, a superiority. But coming from a Colombian perspective, you know, people are just so happy and proud of the positive aspects of Colombia, uh, which is why Colombians are very sensitive about some of the negative things sometimes. You know, they accept them, but they're keen to show the very, very keen to show the world how amazing this place is and how amazing Colombians can be. So sport is a real expression of that, whether it's cycling or... But the football team definitely uh, is a real source of pride. Uh, and that World Cup was, was great until your lot ruined it. <laughs> well, you, you nearly killed Neymar, for goodness sake. Like, come on. <laughs> you nearly oh, killed the man. There was, oh. was a day of national mourning. You broke his back. <laughs> oh, my God. That game drives me mad as well because the Brazilian midfield, which was just three bruises in there, Take, take it, Fernando and Fernandinho literally taking it in terms to foul James Rodriguez. He was fouled 70 odd times in that game. <laughs> he, he was fouled almost literally every minute. And then the amazingly, the, the new story comes down to a club by, uh, by Armero, Zuniga, Armero, the fullback of Neymar. But honestly, that game was depressing. That game only made me suffer even deeper love for Colombia it made me hate Brazil forever because oh my god Colombia basically Colombia had played so well in that tournament that Brazil entered that game looking primarily to disrupt Colombia which is really a compliment to the to the way that Colombia had approached that the fantastic football they played because this is Brazil they've got uh, you know it wasn't a vintage Brazil by at any means at home as well Brazil of, at home Exactly. And first and foremost is how do we kick hammers? You know, how do we stop them getting the ball? How do we disrupt the play? How do we repeatedly foul to disrupt momentum? You know, it's a, it's a real big compliment to Colombian football, uh, even though it's massively depressing and hair pullingly frustrating to see. Also, Colombia started that game playing terribly. You know, they, they really the nerves hit them in that first half and they kind of gone out of the game by the time they picked things up towards the end. But hey. Uh, yeah, so that was a, a real big up, followed by a crushing blow when it was like, oh, so it's it's over. With these international tournaments, when your team goes out, it's like, so this continues, but we're not there anymore. <laughs> you know, it's kind of the, it's a deep, powerful pain <laughs> that you feel when, you know, you look at the fixtures for next week and it's like, oh, but there's, there's no Colombia. Because for me now, Colombia is the team I support, yeah. What, what would make you feel a wee bit better uh, on that one, Simon, would be the fact, I think it was at 4-1 they started taking the uh, the the green and yellow bunting down <laughs> off the main street in town here in the semi-final. So there's, there's a wee bit of therapy. In Andy, you must, be, you must be scratching your head at all this nationalism here. What, what do you make of it all? I, I think it's it's quite it's uh, it's nice and refreshing that yeah that your adopted country as as you know has helped you fall back in love with international football and it's and it is uh, you mentioned nationalism and it is it's good that nationalism yeah it's always seen as a negative because of you know the people it tends to be sort of affiliated with in Europe but it's you know taken used in a different manner yeah it can be a positive and it and if it is a unifying thing and that is the the pride in your nation you know your your team it all brings it's something that brings you together it's something that unifies you then that is that is a good thing and i i do i love that passion i mean you you talk there about okay like colombia there that they've helped you cut, fall back in love with 
with international football, and that's a positive. And you talk about the you know the passion of the players, you know there's the the Latin players that you know they're very emotional and they cry. Well, Roy Hodgson being in charge of the England team, that had a lot of England fans crying. So, you know, you talk about South American passion. There's passion in England as well, you know. <laughs> But Andy, there, there's 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 a lesson in there. There's a lesson in there because you know you had Bobby Robson, a great manager in 1990. You had Venables, who in '96 was an innovator uh, with that England team. And then if you look at the names after that, even you know Capello and Ericsson and whatnot, you know who were meant to be these innovators. You've never had any 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 manager even who who showed any invention or anything. You, you know, I can understand the falling out of love uh, with, with 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 the England team. And, and also that very centric around London thing leaves people like you in the north very exposed. And yeah, and, and I suppose as well, me bringing that up is just my um, my morbid nature to uh, to want to take any positive and turn it into a negative. And then speaking of which, there, there's a good segue, Dave. So come on, move yeah, on. let's I'm... let's talk about proper football then. Uh, and this is another positive, and why the hell not? Simon is a big advocate of proper football, but I think explain <laughs> it to us what proper football is for those who maybe don't know, uh, Simon. Yeah, well, I think this comes down to again the kind of the, the the conflict between the South American way of football, and again, again that embodies so many different things in different countries. But uh, you know, one style of football compared to to the English style of football, one of one of the things that one of the negatives for me is an issue with English football in general. And again, this is subjective. People can look at this in different ways. But one of the frustrations I have is, for example, in 11-a-side football with eight-year-olds, whereby you have the fast kid up front, you have the big kid in defence, and you have the midfielders who watch the ball fly over their head like tennis umpires, and you kick it as far as you can and you chase after it. And it's all boggy and the ball doesn't roll and just run and run and run. And it's like rugby end to end, kick it up that end, get it out, get it in the mixer. Don't mess about with it. He doesn't own it. <laughs> you know, all of this, these ideas of kind of Sunday league football, just rolling around in the mud, lumping it as far as you can. You know, don't try and pass the ball. Don't try and do anything. Don't waste time. Get it forward as quickly as possible. Why are we, why, why are you messing about with the ball at the back? Why would another thing in a lot of English players will say, why did you pass it to him? He's not any nearer the goal than you are. It's like, no, <laughs> no. And these are like good players. So for me, a kind of a, a different, an English, Anglo-Saxon, no nonsense, straight lines, get it forward as quickly as we can approach to football. Again, you may look at it and say, maybe it's to do with the weather or the conditions, but something that's a complete antithesis of the way that football is going uh, and continues to be influential in all levels of football. You know, proper football men, you know, Stoke Cities, get it in the box, Bolton Wanderers, all these kind of things. Just just getting the ball forward. Uh, you know, have I made myself clear? Have I painted a picture? Yeah. It's like the barometer <laughs> of any good player must be, yeah, but can he do it at, in Stoke on a you know wet rainy night on a Tuesday in November in Stoke? Yeah, it's all like, oh, that that's that is the bar for any world class player. Can they do it in Stoke on a wet Tuesday night in November? Yeah, and it's, it's for example, I, I played fo- futsal, like football sally, indoor football, at a pretty decent level. You know, as the top league in London, and I think it was like twelve English players in the whole league uh, because English players putting their foot on the ball 
and moving the ball with with their foot on top of the ball doesn't happen. Even if you play like six or side leagues in England, in, there's very little of that. Very little of pass and move, you know, slow build up play, maintain possession, move the ball around. There's there's a real emphasis on getting it forward, blood and guts, throwing yourself into tackles. And again, maybe it's just me. Maybe I'm just a <laughs> a soft idealist. But I think some of these habits in English football are a real issue and a real problem and kind of outdated. And for me, that isn't good football. No, I agree. Again, it's, no, no. I agree. No, I'm I'm a coach with the, with the junior team, and I've you know my son's 14 now, so I've been following him, watching him, and helped for the last few years, all the way from him being about five year old. And fortunately, times are moving on. They play seven aside up until they're around about ten years old. Then it goes to nine aside. Then they move to eleven. I mean, they've they've been playing eleven aside since they were twelve, thirteen. So it's it's getting better. I'd still prefer to see like smaller sided for a little bit longer. And they're playing like size threes and size fours. And now you know he's fourteen, coming up fifteen, and they're just moving in. They're going to be going into their first season with a size five ball. So. In some ways, mm. yes, it is. It is moving on. It's that there there is progression, but there's still a lot of work to be done. And there's four words that are like a dagger to my heart that I hear every single weekend without fail. Lump and that the is big man. No, get get rid of it. That I hear that yeah. so often, and yeah. I hate it every time. Get rid of it. That ball, you know, as though it's, you shouldn't have it. You don't want it. It's a hot potato. Just get rid of it. We don't need, you know, and it's like the the whole point of football is, you know, that ball has got to be in play and you use it and it's got to go into the opposition's goal. So you need to have it. And it's uh, there's something about the mindset. And I think the aggression, the whole aggression is a really key thing in there. You know, and you see it with parents on the sidelines and some of the coaches and the managers. There's aggression in cheering and, and encouraging, but there's, there's something about... I don't know. There's something else that it's like you said about the blood and thunder, the tackles, bang, have it, lump it, lump it, chase it, run, whack it, ah, as all like it's all part of a war. It's all part of a fight and and beating yeah. it. It's it's competing. Like, my kid's better than your kid. Not not, not so as I don't know. Not like a, a pleasure and enjoy it. And we enjoy football yeah. and we love to play and we love to see it played. And maybe it's, it is. It's just a different mindset to what you find in different parts of the world. Yeah, I think the thinking aspect. And also, you mentioned getting rid of the ball. The, you want the ball. <laughs> and sometimes in football, and especially kind of this, this, this no-nonsense uh, kind of Sunday League-style English football, kind of yards <laughs> in a rugby approach kind of more valued than possession. You know, it's so much better to have the ball inside your own half than for the opposition to have the ball near their own goal. Well, it, you know, you think it would be. Um, but for example, like in the late 80s, early 90s, there were tactics where, for example, from kickoff, they kick the ball off into the corner and then chase it all up, you know, kick it off the pitch into the, the opposition's corner and give them a throw and then try and win it back. It's just like, no, I, I think as, you know, most intelligent observers will look at the best players in the world and they'll see the smart players, you know, the Zidans and the guys who can pick a pass and can keep possession and think their way around the game. But there's a huge antithesis between that and playing in a in a bog where the ball doesn't roll and everyone's just kicking it as far as they can. It's like a different sport, basically. So for me, I think small-sided games are, are important for player development. I think AstroTurf 
is better than a bog. You know, obviously, good grass pitches are the are the perfect situation. But you know, I've played games where it's not possible to make passes, and then what's the point? <laughs> you know, this is just rugby, basically. So for me, that kind of that kind of approach to football um, is is a real a real frustration. Again, it may come down to a personal thing because when I moved to Colombia, the style of football just was so suited and so much, so refreshing for me, having played futsal in England, you know, here, for example, it's, it's a completely different thing. And there are issues as well because I, I manage a, and I play for and manage a team here in Colombia and the Colombian players have certain limitations, but they can all take the ball under pressure, regardless if they're a good player or an average player, they can keep the ball under pressure, playing reduced space because a lot of the kids here grow up playing on the street with small small goals. Uh, if you remember the the Nike adverts with the cage, that's kind of football in South America generally, you know, especially here in Medellin. Most people play day-to-day that kind of football, that very tight concrete pitch with a little metal goalie for end, sometimes with a goalkeeper, which makes it basically impossible. Um, but everyone has a great touch. Everyone has to think. With those kind of small goals, what you have to do is you have to pass it around the keeper and then score. So, you know, people think of small-sided games and, and tight football as, you know, all about individual skills and individual play. But really, you're never going to get anywhere unless it's collective. So I think that aspects of that are so important in terms of good football. You know, and so many of the best players have played futsal or played... Uh, micro football played with these small goals these small balls and, and you know a lot of the best players have, have whether it be street football or whether it be more organised have benefited from that so I think a bit of that tucked in with a bit of uh, you know 11 aside football is important because I play 11 aside football here and a lot of the Colombians don't get it spreading the play opening it up using the wings using the space positional aspects are much stronger in England but when a player gets the ball in a tight midfield, you know, you need to have that experience of close, competitive street football to be able to maintain the ball under pressure and, and open it up. And just, yeah, just, just having a balance. So for me, one of the issues is, is having too much of a focus on lumping it forward, direct football, whereas the best football for me is all in the brain. And that's something, that's a positive, whereas this, this no-nonsense football is a negative for me. Well, listen. Let, let's move it forward because time is marching on on us here, and one that's one that's very, very, very close to your heart. Um, I can't see this being a negative in any sense, Simon. The role of the number ten. <laughs> well, absolutely, I and mean, this is kind of what I'm coming to. But this is something that's like sacred in in Argentina and Colombia as well. Colombia is kind of uh, kind of uh, has come from the football in Argentina. A lot of the Colombian football has been influenced by Argentinian football in terms of the songs and the, the chants in the stadiums, but also in the style of play. The Colombian league was initially a pirate league, so they weren't affiliated to FIFA. So what they could do is just go to a player and go, hey, we'll give you this money if you come and play in Colombia. So a lot of the best players in world football would go and get a nice payday in the new Colombian league, including Di Stefano years and years ago uh, for Millonarios. Anyway, so there's a lot of connection in Colombian and Argentinian football. And, and one of the big figures and one of the big uh, kind of icons in that is the number 10, the, the playmaker. Uh, and for me, I, I cannot get enough of watching an intelligent playmaker who does all of his work just in his head. So Valderrama, for example, for Colombia was, was an incredible player. And I've mentioned him before, but he would just take the ball, pass it. He would always have the ball. 
and yet would never have the ball. So he would always be involved. He would always be seconds away from touching it. But if you try and mark him, if you try and close him down, the ball's gone. And he's come back and he's got it again. You know, those kind of players who will, will do the thinking for the team. So Riquelme, for example, at Boca Juniors, he was smart enough for everyone else. You know, he, he was intelligent enough to carry that whole team and see those passes and see, OK, so the, the fullback's going to play down the wing. And if he cuts it inside, then I can play it down, you know, have it all planned out. And for me, that's kind of the, the essence. That's what makes football so incredible and inspiring to see these players picking passes that from an elevated view on the on the TV with, you know, with, without having to run, you can't see. And just that pass where it slips through or when you play that really delicate through ball. And by the time it's the strikers were onto it, it's already basically stopped. And just the shift of the angle has has made that pass so perfect. You know, for me, I, I, I love watching it. I love when I, you know, for me, I, I get more reward playing football by paying that pot through ball or by seeing that pass. So, yeah, so something that really gets me excited. And if you've listened to the South American football shows, the, it's always the number 10 who catches my eye. But they're really lauded in South American football. Uh, and and that's something that I really, really appreciate and really admire, especially, again, coming from England in the 90s. There weren't any number 10s. And when they started turning up, Gianfranco Zola, Eric Cantona, just that guy who stepped off five yards between the lines, just completely changed the game. Zola was able to do things in England that he could never do in Italy. He was always a great, great player. But there was that dropping off five yards. Is it the centre-back? Is it the centre-mid in a 4-4-2 formation? Completely changed everything. So, yeah, just the role of a, of a classic number 10 who does the passing, does the thinking, has the vision really necessarily doesn't necessarily be need to be the most athletic player but that's something for me that always cheers me up and makes me really appreciate football that's those are the players that i i admire and, and put a smile on my face I, I couldn't agree more on that one by the way um I, I mean as a liverpool fan growing up it, it was you know kenny dalglish was a hero uh, and this is kind of for me is a like an evolution of the number 10 role you know as i as i was growing up that that was a player i, I saw dalglish you know towards the end of his, of his of his legendary status, and then it was my hero was was Peter Baisley. He was the guy who I modelled my game on, you know, who I wanted to be like, and he was like, I suppose the number ten of the time, which you know the second striker, but he, you know, the the guy who would drop off, the guy who would create, the the guy who could do something a bit different, who could see something different, who would make himself available in different positions. The guy who would set somebody up, he was the, you know, the strike partner. It wasn't necessarily the goals that he scored, but his team always seemed to score goals, and his strike part, part partner would always seem to score a lot of goals. You know that he was my hero, and that was the kind of player I wanted to be. And I, I absolutely adored watching him play. And I was like you, I love scoring a goal, but I, but the next thing to scoring a goal was setting somebody else up. And there's some kind of, there is a. As a kind of a real sense of satisfaction of, of to setting a goal up, and I love that. And I do kind of I took that on watching players like that. And Dennis Burkamp is probably my, apart from Peter Beasley, Dennis Burkamp was my my hero, the player I loved watching more than any. And then he was for me, he was a number ten. You know, the the guy who who made everything tick, the brains of the operation. But I do kind of think that number ten's kind of evolved now. It's seen. 
it's gone from being almost like a second striker to to being like an advanced midfield position now. But do you think that's just kind of the way that you know the the nuances of football move along? Yeah, no, I think I think so. I think also the the definition of a number ten in South America is a little bit different as well. They kind of it, it's basically and again they're called the playmaker is called the number ten. Yes, the number ten, uh, and it's it's basically seen in South America as the guy who thinks the game. You know, the guy who's making the on-the-field decisions. Because for me, when you see a tight game and, and, and it's, it is all set up and it's all tight and there's that one guy who'll just make that pass or do something different. And it's also to do with timing. So, for example, as the ball's rolling to you, some people will just take a touch and pass it. Some people will let it roll out of their feet and wait and then there's a slip. You know, those tiny, tiny, minuscule differences. You know, the number 10 in South America is often the guy who's allowed to have that extra touch because one of the frustrations i have again watching football is when someone has two or three touches unnecessarily like they'll hold on to the ball a little bit too long just because they're kind of waiting to see what happens and then they pass it and make the simple pass anyway and it kills momentum but the 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 real creative intelligent player can be afforded those extra touches because he's going to do something better by taking that time. And one of the issues with Colombia is, I mentioned that Colombia hadn't qualified for a World Cup since 98. One of the issues is, after Zinedine's, uh, sorry, after Carlos Valderrama, all of the best players in Colombia wanted to be the number 10. And Colombia had seven or eight top quality number 10s. Neda Morante, Giovanni Hernandez, some of these real, really good players. They were all number 10s because everyone was inspired to be the new Carlos Valderrama. And every Colombian team, all of their best player was a number 10 was the intelligent guy who could get the ball, could make the decisions. You know, you, you, you play the ball simple to the number 10 and he'll do the creative stuff. You just make your runs. You know, as soon as he gets the ball, you make the run, you know he's going to find you. So for me, it's those kind of legendary, inspirational kind of superhero players, um, which are so valued in Colombian and Argentinian football. Again, in Brazil, they kind of lost sight of that for a while. A lot of the central midfielders were a bit more defensive. But yeah, that, that legendary vision, creative number 10 who does something a bit different, pauses as well. That's the thing in South America, the pause, where you, you look into the pass, you wait that second, then it's in just because the, the moment has opened up. Looking for those angles, those spaces. Yeah, for me, that, all that stuff makes me so excited and enthusiastic. No, and I hear you on that. I think, you know, what you said there, Brazil really lost its direction for a long time, Simon. Uh, you know, from, from basically the, the, the last World Cup win, the quality of footballer has gone down here. Now, the, the current team's a lot better. And, and the point that you made there about Gianfranco Zola, for me, Gianfranco Zola was the player that revolutionized, you know, they talk about Wenger in, in management terms, revolutionized English football. The, the arrival of Gianfranco Zola for me, was was the the day that English football turned around and 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 went a different direction, and it's funny how just one player can actually do that, and I think that, that, that it's an incredible spot that one. Andy yourself, yeah, I, like you say, I'm a big fan of the the number ten. I mean, I know there is the slightly the, the different nuances there of the guys of of what the role they perform and where the, you know where they are in the team and what they do. But I, I do, I love that technical player with the vision, the ability, the skill, ju- just and that timing. That, that's the big thing that Sam said there, you know, the timing. Knowing where to pass, when to pass, how to make that pass. I mean, for, for me, I, I actually, I, I do think English football started to take the turn when, uh, when Wenger came in. And I think he just really kind of changed the whole kind of outlook that you can win playing, you know, attractive football. And it, it was just... 
he had that blend that was just nice of that you know traditional Arsenal mean back four and goalkeeper and whatnot, but but blended it well with a creative midfield and a blistering attack and skills and everything else. And he just had the, the perfect players at the perfect time to do it all. And Burkamp was was kind of the fulcrum of all that. You know, the guys who would who were out wide, likes of Robert Perez, who would cut inside, you know, the in, the first inverted winger, he was coming inside. I don't think there's any coincidence that it's, you know, Lundberg and Perez were banging goals in for fun when they were alongside Thierry Henry, who were all playing, effectively playing off Dennis Burkamp. And I just, yeah, <laughs> it's been my love for Burkamp. But that kind of a player, uh, fully echo, Sam, what he's saying is, you know, they're just so special. It's just such a, a fantastic thing to see in football when when it's performed so eloquently. Uh, yeah, no, absolutely. For, yeah, for me, I mean, so many players can make that pass, but only the really great, intelligent players can see the pass. So for me, those are the players that, that really inspire and, and get me excited. So, Sam, just to, to close things off here, what we do like to do as well, just to make this a little bit different and... I mean, we talked about it a little bit earlier as well. I mentioned, you know, there's that piece of music that kind of took me back to that England-Holland game. So is there a piece of music that takes you back to, to one of your football moments in particular? Yeah, well, I was tempted to go for something something Latin and, exo- Latin and exotic. I was thinking a bit of Rastastas from the 2014 World Cup. You can check that out on Google. It's a, it's a mix between kind of urban salsa music with a bit of uh, Move Bitch by Ludacris in there. Uh, it's worth checking out, uh, but I've gone for something that really takes me back to you know I had a I had an album of England football songs from from the from 1996 sad, and going back sad. and that uh... <laughs> yeah but when I was when I was uh, ten and eleven it was it was inspiring and exciting so I'm gonna go back to that and yeah you know Three Lions Badil and Skinner that song for me takes me back there and maybe maybe gives a bit of hope that maybe things will start getting better again for England <laughs> and maybe I can get enthusiastic and, and excited about England football team again as I did back in 1996 with that amazing tournament and that fun team. I always remember the the, the, the Kuntz reference <laughs> during that video was, was rather amusing. <laughs> yeah, the hand in the the uh, custard with the World Cup. And poor old Jeff Hurst and his, and his Merc getting hit by a football. Ah, oh, great times, great times. <laughs> well, it's, it's, it's been a lot of fun. Um, and B for me, it's, it's been a bit of an education on uh, an introduction into some of the South American stuff because uh, I'll, I'll freely admit I don't really uh, get into all of that. So you two guys uh, are the experts and I'm a complete novice on that side of it. Um, before we head off though, Simon, uh, whereabouts can the uh, the lucky listeners find you on the marvellous world of Twitter? Yes, I'm on Twitter at Simon Edwards SAF. If you're interested in anything about Colombian football, whether it be the national team or Colombian transfers, been quite a few this week, James Rodriguez, maybe Quintero going to the MLS. Uh, I kind of keep people updated on there with the Twitter. Any questions, send me a direct message. Uh, I'm always happy to share the good word about Colombian football, which I think is is going places and is a lot of exciting things moving forward. So, yeah, any Colombian questions, any Colombian news, check out my Twitter at Simon Edwards SAF. And be careful that you spell Colombia with with an O and not a U because he's very touchy. He's very touchy about that. <laughs> Ooh. Yeah, be careful that one. Well, Simon, as we say that, you know, 
thanks for joining us. It's uh, it's a pleasure and an education all at the same time. A little bit different this podcast. It'll move along and it'll it'll evolve in its own little way. Something South American for you this week, Dave. What was it? What's yours again? At Dave RN six six. If you're if you're very sad. Oh, that's uh, it. Yes. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Your your reference to nineteen sixty six. You see, talking about was English born, football. Leave me alone. Days. I'm old. <laughs> <laughs> Even Dave can't get away from the England's World Cup win. I'm an, at Andy Armchair. If you really really want to uh, to do all that. But we'll be back next week for another In My Life. But until then, we'll be heading out with a bit of uh, Badil and Skinner and Three Lines. We're not creative enough. We're not positive enough. It's coming home. It's coming home. It's coming. Football's coming home. We'll go on getting back. So I'm getting back. So I'm getting back. So I'm getting back. It's coming home, it's coming home, it's coming home.